Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And I'm starting recording this a little bit earlier in the week than I have the last few weeks, so fingers crossed it should be out in good time. Especially since, weirdly, I have four cinematic films to talk about, despite the fact that Doctor Strange is still in the cinemas, and Top Gun Maverick is just around the corner. But some art house distributors decided to squeeze some stuff in, and all of them did it at the same time. So, I have four cinematic films to talk about. The wacky and bizarre festival favourite from America, Everything Everywhere All at Once. The quiet Gaelic language film, The Quiet Girl. The powerful Australian film The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson, and also the latest Stephen King adaptation, Firestarter. I also found time to squeeze in a Netflix film over this time period, a film I've been eager to get to, Windfall. So, yes, five films in total and a heavy cinematic presence. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Everything Everywhere All At Once is the latest film directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who are collectively known as Daniels. They are perhaps best known as directors of music videos, most famous for the extraordinary video to Turn Down For What by DJ Snake and Lil Jon. That award-winning and very viral music video got Daniels their big break into fame and one of the main performers in that video Sunita Mani has a recurring cameo in this film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, as an opera singer who we frequently see on TV screens. But following that, and following various other commercials and TV episodes, Daniels made their feature film debut with Swiss Army Man, which was a film... I did like, I thought it was very, very inventive, very strange, which is kind of what Daniels are known for. And now they have returned with this latest film, which deals with the multiverse. And it's like buses, you wait ages for films about the multiverse to come along, and then two come along within two weeks of each other. And while the multiverse in Everything Everywhere All at Once is a slightly different proposition to the multiverse in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, 
they each have their intriguing aspects. Everything Everywhere All at Once stars Michelle Yeoh as a Chinese immigrant woman who married Ke Hui Quan, who most people will know from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Goonies, but Ke Hui Quan hasn't actually acted for about 20 years. He did have a reasonably successful career as a fight choreographer. Several times he has acted as assistant fight choreographer slash translator for American films that the legendary fight choreographer Yuan Wo Ping worked on. But he hasn't actually acted for about 20 years until returning last year or two years ago with Finding Ohana, which seems kind of appropriate because Finding Ohana was overtly a rip-off of Goonies. It may as well have been a remake of Goonies and Ke Hui Kwan was in it. But yeah, he seems to have decided to re-enter the acting world and now Ke Hui Kwan plays Michelle Yeoh's husband running this failing laundromat in California. They have a daughter played by Stephanie Hsu who has a confrontational relationship with her mother. One of the things which they have confrontations over is the fact that Stephanie Hsu is gay, has a girlfriend played by Tally Madal, and although she pays lip service to it, it doesn't appear that Michelle Yeoh is entirely happy with her daughter being gay. But a much bigger problem at the moment is she is being audited. And she needs to go to the IRS office, where the IRS officer who is auditing this failing Lord Robert is being played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's only one line, or I only remember one line, but Michelle Yeoh says at one point that this woman only audits the Chinese owned businesses. So there's possibly a hint of racism, but as I said, that's only mentioned once. But it is clear that Jamie Lee Curtis, for whatever reason, is out to get Michelle Yeoh and this failing laundromat. Also complicating the situation is that Michelle Yeoh's father is visiting from China, played by the legendary James Hong who is past 90 now and almost always nowadays just appears in voice performances. But any authoritative older Chinese man in 80s and 90s films was usually played by James Hong. So as Michelle Yeoh and her family are going into the IRS office, something strange starts happening to Ke Hui Quan. He starts sounding very different. He insists that Michelle Yeoh put on some earphones and says, we are all in great danger. You need to do these things in order to save your family and save yourself. You, know, you need to put on your shoes on the wrong feet. You need to meet me in this janitor's closet. And we can save the world. I mean, obviously, Michelle Yeoh doesn't believe him, but. Eventually, 
she is forced to do this, and it is revealed that Kehoi Kwan is no longer her husband. He is an alternative version of her husband from the Alphaverse. The one of many, many different universes which has discovered how to travel between universes. And this wondrous thing, travelling between universes, has also brought some problems with it. There is a character named Jobu Topaki, who is going around all the multiverses she can find and destroying the various versions of Michelle Yeoh. And Jobu Topaki is just about to enter this universe, so you're in danger, you need to do something about this. If you do something statistically unlikely, like putting your shoes on different feet, or eating chapstick, or giving yourself a paper cut, are a couple of examples from this film, then you tap these earphones, the people in the Alphaverse will get the message, and your consciousness will be transported into various different people in these different universes and will give you skills that will help you in the situation, help you to survive the devastating effects of Jobu Tupaki. And not understanding any of this, Michelle Yeoh does it anyway. But when Jamie Lee Curtis or somebody who looks like Jamie Lee Curtis starts attacking her, she has to believe it. And she starts trying to fight Jobu Topaki, tries to start fighting the various different versions of the multiverse and getting skills from these different multiverse versions of Michelle Yeoh. In one, she is a hibachi chef. In one, she is a spinner of signboards outside a pizza restaurant. In one, she is a famous martial artist and film star. And there are some pieces of red carpet footage with, you know, Michelle Yeoh in them. So whenever she needs skills to get her out of different situations, she does something strange, touches these earbuds, and she has the skills to fight off the dangerous forces of Jobu Topaki. But can she survive these incursions can she get her tax problems sorted and it becomes increasingly apparent throughout the course of the film that she also desperately needs to fix the relationship between her and her daughter stephanie shoe so can she do all this and can the multiverse survive what I really like about Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I do really, really like Everything Everywhere All at Once, is that it is a film which, yes, has an elaborate, a complicated, and sometimes a frankly silly tone to it. There's one of these universes which she visits where everybody's hands are like hot dogs. They're long and thick and floppy and no good for anything. So yes, sometimes it's silly, but fundamentally, 
it turns into a film about the mother-daughter relationship. It turns into a film about, in order to save the multiverse, I need to save my relationship with my daughter. And realising, A, that the relationship with your daughter is so bad it needs fixing, and two, finding ways to do that. Acknowledging that the harsh treatment that Michelle Yeoh got from her father, James Hong, is exactly the same harsh treatment that Michelle Yeoh is giving her daughter, Stephanie Hsu. The generational traumas are fundamental here. This is another film which, in a lot of ways, did remind me of the Disney film Encanto. Very much about passing down generational traumas and not treating your family, your descendants particularly well. And that's what's going on here. And understanding that and realising it, and trying to fix it. There's every chance that Michelle Yeoh and Stephanie Hsu's relationship is too far gone. But realising what you need to do and trying to do it might be enough. And in all these different worlds and all these different universes, you have different versions of Michelle Yeoh. In some places, you know, very similar versions of Michelle Yeoh. The idea of this multiverse is that every decision you make splits off and makes a different multiverse. So some are very close to what Michelle Yeoh is currently doing. Some are very, very different. But seeing all the wonderful things that the other Michelle Yeohs are doing... It's tempting, you know, can I just go over and stay there and, and be you know, a famous movie star like Michelle Yeoh? Uh, no, your brain will explode. So, yeah, it, it, another way that this is similar to Encanto is that our Michelle Yeoh, the one that is the protagonist of the film, not the various different versions of her, her superpower is that she has no superpowers. This is the version of Michelle Yeoh who made all the wrong decisions leading up to this point. And now she's in a seemingly unhappy marriage with a seemingly very unhappy daughter and a business that's about to be taken by the tax people. This is, in some ways, the worst version of Michelle Yeoh, but therefore the best person to fix this job because. She can see all the different things. She can accommodate all these different ideas, which are so different from her current life, and maybe fix the world. And because it's Michelle Yeoh, more often than not, she does it with awesome fight choreography. I mean, Michelle Yeoh's now, I think, 59 years old. So I doubt she did a lot of her own stunts, but I'm sure as hell she worked on the choreography of her own fighting, and it's exceptionally good, as is Kei Hui Kwan. There's one fight scene involving Kei Hui Kwan and a bum bag, or a fanny pack if you're American, which is breathtaking. It's brilliant to see what Kei Hui Kwan can do with a fanny pack. So yeah, the fight scenes in this film are exceptionally good. The family relationships, the family dynamic is very well done as well. All the weird and wacky and wonderful alternative universes we see all are really, really good. But 
What really, really makes this film sing for me is the fact that the ultimate solution or the method with which Joe Butapaki arguably is finally defeated. I mean, it's a little bit unclear. And when you're dealing with the multiverse, I think everything is a little bit unclear. But when Joe Butapaki is confronted in such a way that her reign of terror across the multiverse is, if not stopped, then at least quelled, the way Michelle Yeoh does it is by treating her with kindness. Not by fighting, but by talking, by engaging emotionally, not engaging physically. Showing open, honest kindness rather than violence or threat is the best way to deal with this situation. And that is a wonderful message to have. Yeah, a very different message to Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. But that is the thing which leads most closely to success, is showing kindness and behaving empathetically to your enemy. And that is wonderful. And seeing how this lesson gets taught, how this message is spread, is a brilliant part of this film. And you know, seeing all these different versions, I mean, I started becoming aware, I mean, I watched this in the Odeon Cinema here in Bath in a preview screening, and it's apparently not showing up in Bath apart from this one preview screening, which really annoys me. But I watched it in this preview screening, and I started realising that different things, different universes were being shot in slightly different aspect ratios. There's one bit in the middle of this film where it looks like, oh no, there's going to be a terribly sad ending and the credits start coming up. And I could hear all around me, and it was a packed screen. I could hear all around me sort of like murmurs and gasps. So really, is that where we're leaving it? But not me, because I noticed that it was a slightly different aspect ratio and I could see what was going on. What we were seeing was, you know, the film within the film. The one that Michelle Yeoh is attending, you know, the actress Michelle Yeoh is attending. And the way that that Michelle Yeoh interacts with her husband, Kehoi Kwan, who in this universe they never married, which is why Michelle Yeoh went off and became a successful movie star. But they have these conversations and they have these deep philosophical discussions and it's beautiful. It actually kind of weirdly reminded me of one car wise in the mood for love. I'm not sure if that was deliberately being evoked by Daniels, but for me, it really had that tragic tension to the romance. Yes, there's this bond here, but we can't and won't actually do anything about it. In a film which has all these weird references, like in the Mood for Love, if that indeed was a reference. There's another weird reference to Ratatouille as well. But I mean, that is a beautiful aspect of this. I mean, all the different ways that your life could have been different. But I saw that it was the film within the film because the aspect ratio was slightly different. So if you ever do see this, and if you can find it at the cinema, I urge you to find it at the cinema. 
pay attention to the aspect ratio because that will give you a lot of information about what is going on. But regardless of that, I think everything in this film works. It is wacky and weird and wonderful and colourful. It has some genuine emotional depth to it, the way that families treat each other, the way you treat your partner. In many of these universes, Kehoi Kwan and Michelle Yeoh are on the verge of divorce. What happened? How can we fix this? Can we fix this? There's some genuine philosophical pieces to it. I mean, there's one deeply emotional conversation which is held between two rocks. Which is strange, but it, it is generally one of the most emotional and enriching parts of the film. And it's two rocks on screen, and we are seeing the subtitles as they are talking to each other. It's remarkable, and this whole film is remarkable. I think this is a wonderful film which works on so many different levels. Some of the best fight choreography I've seen for years, and that's not even a major part of this film. The sci-fi ideas, the emotional ideas, everything works together. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It works. And for me, this is a definite yay. As I said, if you can make it to the cinema and see this, I urge it. But however you do see it, I do recommend you see it. Because for me, everything, everywhere, all at once is an unqualified yay. Next up, we have The Quiet Girl, or in its native Gaelic, Anne Cullen Cullen. This is the debut feature from director Colm Barade, and he actually won Best Director at the Irish Film and Television Awards over Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. And the 12-year-old lead actress of this film, Catherine Clinch, also won Best Actress at the IFTA Awards. So basically, I would be absolutely astonished if Ireland doesn't submit this to the International Feature Oscar this year, and it might actually have a decent chance. I certainly liked it an awful lot. It is 1981 in rural Ireland, and a... Poverty-stricken family is growing up in a ramshackle farmhouse. The father is a bully, a drunk, and a gambler. The mother is completely overwhelmed with five kids aging from about two to about 17 and a sixth on the way. And the middle daughter who's about 12 or so, played by Catherine Clinch, is a little bit of a dreamer, has mild behavioural problems because she's simply not getting enough attention. Her three older sisters dismiss her completely and mildly bully her, and the mother has just had enough. So, the mother of this family, Kate Nick Conai, decides to send young Court, played by Catherine Clinch, away to the summer to her cousin, Carrie Crowley, and her former husband, Andrew Bennett. 
basically get her out of the way whilst I prepare to have this baby. One less mouth to feed, one less person to worry about. She can spend the summer over there and they can look after her and feed her and pay for her. So, not really knowing what's going on, Catherine Clinch goes away to this somewhat distant relative who Carrie Crowley says the last time she saw Catherine Clinch, Catherine Clinch was in a pram. But gradually, Catherine Clinch starts thriving in this new environment. She's actually being paid attention to. She is actually treated with love and care and respect, which is not something she is getting at home. And this seems like an idyllic summer, but it is a summer which must inevitably end. And there is also a great sadness hanging over this family of Carrie Crowley and Andrew Bennett. The fact that Catherine Clinch is put in a room with trains on the walls and when she needs alternative clothes to the ones she brought with her, they are boys' clothes. So we can read between the lines and see what's happened here. So there is a great sadness at the centre of this, but also a great enrichment for everybody who basically needs each other for this particular summer. But can it last? One of the pitfalls of doing this podcast for so many years and watching so many films is that my frame of reference is very, very different to the majority of other people out there. When I was watching The Quiet Girl, the film that kept coming most strongly to mind is a Catalan language film from 2018 called Summer 1993, which I actually classified as my best foreign language film of 2018. I also gave the little star of that film, Laia Artigas, an honourable mention as best young performer that year. Summer 1993 is a brilliant film, and I do thoroughly recommend it, particularly if you enjoyed The Quiet Girl, because there's a lot of parallels here. A young girl sent away to the countryside with people she doesn't know, and initially absolutely resenting and hating the situation, but gradually embracing it and finding a new sense of belonging, a new sense of purpose in her life and a melancholy direction that the story is going in. I did get strong reminders of that. So I, I think The Quiet Girl is perhaps a little more tragic than Summer 1993. I think the outcome of Summer 1993 is melancholic, but generally positive. Whereas The Quiet Girl goes in some ambiguous directions, and depending on how much you like humanity, what faith you have in humanity, it could go a lot of different ways. But it is very simple, very clever to see. I mean, this is a simple story. We can basically see every single plot point which is going to happen. Comberide isn't trying to hide anything. It's just the way he executes it. 
I mean, we can see very, very quickly, as soon as Catherine Clinch goes to this stranger's, basically, farm, okay, they've lost the son, and this is something to fill the gap to some degree. And the woman of who is taking care of Catherine Clinch, Carrie Crowley, really, really gets into it. And her husband, Andrew Bennett, is initially completely dismissive, basically ignores this 12-year-old girl who is suddenly staying with them. Because he can see the problems coming. He can see, look, eventually we will care for, we will even love this child, but she's not ours. and. Against his better judgments, eventually his walls break down. And yeah, it's beautiful to see this 12 year old girl thriving in this environment. I mean, yes, the title of the film, The Quiet Girl and Colleen Quinn, is appropriate. She doesn't say an awful lot, but you can see, and when she does speak, you can see that this is the encouragement, the love that she needs and has been sorely lacking from the rest of her life, from the rest of her family. I mean, her father is a total dickhead. He only sees sending this girl away for the summer as a way, oh, well, we won't have to feed her. Let this other family be eaten out of house and home, which is absolutely not going to happen. It's also significance i think that the father played by michael patrick is the only cast member of this film who seems to use english as his primary language rather than gaelic it's actually even unclear whether he even understands gaelic despite the fact he's surrounded by gaelic speaking people including his wife and children but he always speaks English. He always expects people to speak to him in English. And that's a, a very strong character beat for this person who inevitably must come back into the picture towards the end of the film once this sixth baby has been born. And yeah, it's melancholic, it's arguably tragic. But it's beautifully subtle, it's beautifully simple. It's just beautiful. It really is a really nice film. And yeah, I, I think The Quiet Girl is the kind of gentle, heartfelt film. And depending on your mood, you could see it as a heartwarming film as well. But it's really, really well done. I think Catherine Clinch, this 12-year-old actress, is exceptionally well cast. It's easy to see why she beats more well-established actresses like Neve Algar for the film Censor, which was a very good performance, to the Best Actress Award at the IFTAs. I mean, this is a film which deserves attention, and I do think it is well worth watching. So for me, The Quiet Girl, which should still be available in cinemas by the time this podcast is released, is for me a yay. I did really enjoy it. And following an Irish film, now we have an Australian film, The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. 
This is a film which is written by, directed by, and stars Leah Purcell, who is a long-standing and well-established actress, mainly on Australian television, but she is respected in her native country. And she initially put on this story, The Drover's Wife, on stage, adapting, and rather radically adapting, an 1892 short story by Henry Lawson, which is seemingly one of the canon pieces in Australian literature. It is a very well-regarded, very well-respected short story. It has been parodied and reworked multiple times over the years, over the centuries even, and Leah Purcell is the latest to do so. I believe this is actually the first film adaptation, but there's been a lot of ancillary writing around The Drover's Wife by Henry Wilson. And Leah Purcell has turned it into something which is radically different and approaches themes and ideas which are not in the original short story. I actually, after watching this, read Henry Lawson's short story, and it's a severe departure from this actual film version. But it is very interesting nonetheless, and you can easily see why Leah Purcell wanted to do such a radical reinterpretation of this story. Molly Johnson is a drover's wife in the late 19th century who lives in a mountainous region. The film was shot in the snowy mountains of New South Wales. I'm not sure whether that's where it's actually set. But Molly Johnson, as played by Leah Purcell, is a drover's wife who, for months at a time, has to live on her own with her gaggle of children whilst her husband is away droving gathering up all the sheep to be sold at market and make certain people in the local region rather wealthy, although clearly not the drover's wife. So she's alone in the outback with four kids and another one on the way. The eldest child is about 12 years old and is excellently played by Malachi Dower Roberts. And he is basically, despite being 12, the man of the house while his father is away droving. And into this isolated and harsh environment, two separate visitors come and shake up the balance and the equilibrium of Molly Johnson and her family. First up, we have... An English policeman, played by Sam Reed, alongside his wife, Jessica DeGau, who is accepting a position in the Australian outback as the force of law and order in this still basically wilderness environment. But he's not used to the outback, he's lost his way, he's lost his provisions, so Leah Purcell accepts Sam Reed and Jessica DeGau gives them some food, points them in the right direction, and also says that the four youngest kids, they need to stay for a while in the local town, basically respite care whilst I prepare to have this baby, 
so would you mind dropping them off at the local town? So all the kids are off with this policeman and his wife, and whilst away, and whilst Leah Purcell a little bit early goes into labour, she also stumbles across an Aboriginal man, played by Rob Collins, who has shackles around his neck. He is badly wounded, and it soon emerges he's also wanted for murder. But he claims he's innocent and he's just you know, only guilty of being in Australia whilst black. So. Initially begrudgingly, but she is in labour and it's a breech birth, so she does need help. She reluctantly lets this Aboriginal man help her and feeds him, saying, right, in a couple of days I'll go away up to my native lands to the north of here. You'll never see me again. But, of course, things don't go that simply. And soon there are questions from this policeman. There are questions from other rough-hewn men of the vicinity. There's also questions from the priest's sister, who is currently looking after the four smallest children. And things rapidly spiral out of control. So can Leah Purcell keep her dignity, keep her family together? and survive in this harsh environment. Harsh enough, even if she wasn't a woman in the late 19th century in Australia. I think I've seen quite a few films like this. Films set in the past and approaching modern-day concerns and ideals. This film actually uses the term battered woman which is nearly a century before it became into common use, but somehow it fits in this environment. The film is talking about these things, about violence against women, violence against native peoples. This is the first film I've seen in quite some time which uses the N-word. It is not shying away from its themes. And yes, I think the terminology possibly might be a little bit anachronistic, but it is getting its point across. And in films like this, which have modern ideals put into the past, usually there's something to lessen the blow, something for the audience to say, well, oh, look, there's a good person who isn't racist or violent towards women. That's who I would have been in that situation. Completely ignoring the fact that things like domestic violence, things like racism, were so pervasive, were so endemic in the past, you would absolutely be those people in the past. It was just the way things were. And Modern sensibilities just didn't exist in those time periods, or at least not in the same way. And equally, another way that you often get the blow lessened in these historical dramas is to have a rosy outcome, is to have a plot which skirts around the truths and the realities of 
time in the past and saying, yes, well, this would come out the same way in the past as it would come out now. I mean, if exactly these things happened in the modern day, this would happen, this would happen, this would happen, and it would be basically okay. But in the past, we can daydream, if we want to, that the same things would have happened when they just wouldn't. That is usually the case with this kind of historical film or property which has modern-day issues it wants to raise. But that is not the case with The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. This film fully commits to its themes. It is talking about the harsh environment, it's talking about the harsh treatment of women in the past, and it does not go well. This is a film which makes the audience look at what happened in the past and fully experience what happened in the past. And it wasn't good. I love the way that this film fully commits, and I love the way that Leah Purcell, as writer, director, and star, made this film happen. It doesn't sugarcoat anything, it does have overt racial overtones it does have the use of the n-word it does have what amounts to lynchings in it that's just the way things were in late 19th century australia and by extension still kind of happening today i mean look at the documentary from what two years ago now the australian dream and what happened to adam goods when he was racially abused on an aussie rules pitch This kind of stuff is still going on in Australia. Leah Purcell, as an actress who has Aboriginal descent, does not shy away from the truths of the Aboriginal experience. And when the character starts being questioned about her racial identity, when Molly Johnson is accused of having Aboriginal blood in her, This is horrifying to her, even though she has been connected to Aboriginal peoples. She is helping this Aboriginal fugitive, Rob Collins. When it is suggested that she might have Aboriginal blood, the character reacts very badly to it. And the simple fact that these children have Aboriginal blood, or potentially have Aboriginal blood, or are accused of having Aboriginal blood, that alone might be enough for her children to be taken away from her. And again, that's just the way things are. And the film fully commits to these ideas. It shows out what life was like for these types of people in late 19th century Australia, and by extension today. And we have different ideas and different backgrounds to explore. Molly Johnson is a character who has grown up in these environments. As somebody describes, and you see that in the trailer, she knows the ways. Whereas this policeman who comes in, played by Sam Reid, and by extension his wife, played by Jessica DeGau, who dreams of starting a women's magazine, and basically civilization, quote-unquote, in this 
particular region and this particular time period is basically a load of wooden huts. So yeah, that women's magazine is probably not going to go anywhere, but that's her dream. That's her ideal. And Sam Reed has been injured in the Boer War and severely injured. And instead of being stuck behind a desk in the army in South Africa, Jessica Go encouraged her husband to apply to be a policeman in Australia. And he's badly injured enough that it's probably not a good idea to send him to the outback with these rough and ready men in this rough and ready environment. But he is the force of law and order. He wants to bring, quote-unquote, civilization to the outback. But civilization is a very, very different thing in different times and places. And the fact he is limping allows for a very telling moment where this 12-year-old boy, played by Malachi Dower Roberts, sees this policeman limping and asks him, oh, did your dad do that to you? which is an incredibly telling moment and leads into the whole thing. I mean, and it quickly emerges that Jessica DeGaulle has a, or had, a sister who was essentially beaten to death by her husband. And, yeah, it it has all these things in it. And it's laid bare, it's laid raw. And it doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't make it an easy pill to swallow for a modern audience who wants a tiny bit of comfort with their campaigning. This film doesn't give it. It's hard. It's harsh. It's brilliantly acted by Leah Purcell in particular. I also think her eldest son, played by Malachi Dower Roberts, is very good. The Aboriginal fugitive Rob Collins and... The policeman's wife, Jessica DeGauer, I also think are very, very good. All around, this is an excellent, excellent film. And if you can still find it at cinemas, I do think that The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson, is well worth checking out. And for me, it is another yay. So yes, it was a very good week at the cinema, with the three films I've so far talked about all being yays, which... Honestly, very, very rarely happens. And then the fourth film I saw at the cinema this week was Firestarter. The latest Stephen King adaptation, which has already been adapted into a film in 1984 starring a young Drew Barrymore, but this 2022 version is directed by Keith Thomas, whose previous directorial feature-length effort was the Reasonably well-respected horror movie, The Vigil, which did get good reviews coming out of the horror press, but I never bothered with it because I'm not a fan of horror. But this latest version stars Zac Efron and Sidney Lemon as a couple who agreed to be part of a medical experiment whilst they were students. And after this experiment went horribly, horribly wrong, and seemingly they were the only survivors, they hooked up together and had a child who, at the start of the film, is played by Ryan Kira Armstrong and is roughly eight years old. But this experiment has drastically affected everybody. Zac Efron can push people to do what he wants 
Sydney Lemon can create incredibly vivid fantasies for people so they don't exactly know what they're seeing. And she's so scared of this that she doesn't actually use it at all. And Ryan Kira Armstrong starts fires. The family has been on the run for the last eight years or so, never using smartphones, never using the internet, keeping completely off the grid, doing jobs which are cash-only propositions, so unbelievably fearful of what might happen if the government ever finds them and ever uses Ryan Kira Armstrong for their own ends. But inevitably, as young Charlie, played by Ryan Kara Armstrong, gets more powerful, she gets more noticeable. And after a particularly extravagant demonstration of her powers at school, once again the family is on the run. Pursued by a Native American, played by Michael Grey Eyes, the awesome Michael Grey Eyes, who I think should have been Oscar nominated for Wild Indian last year. But Michael Grey Eyes is hired by the government department in the person of Gloria Rubin to track down Ryan Kira Armstrong and take her back to be experimented upon and used as a weapon for the sake of American interests. So can Zac Efron and Sidney Lemon keep one step ahead of the government and one step ahead of this assassin Michael Greyeyes, who himself has psychic powers, and keep young Charlie safe? Or will it end in a giant fireball? And quite honestly, will we care? This is so basic, so generic, nothing exciting, nothing original. We've seen these kinds of things done before, and we've seen them done substantially better. I mean, the 1984 Drew Barrymore version isn't hugely well-remembered, but I think it's probably better than this. There's just nothing interesting here. Oh, actually, well, there's one behind-the-scenes thing which is actually kind of interesting. One thing that I constantly complain about and constantly reference, particularly in modern-day horror films, is the score. And how often the scores of modern-day horror films are heavily influenced by John Carpenter and his approach to making music for his own movies. Well, this 2022 film Firestarter has a score co-written by John Carpenter. And as far as I can tell, that is his only contribution to this film Firestarter. Which is a little bit coming full circle, because John Carpenter was originally scheduled to direct the 1984 Firestarter, but after the commercial failure of the thing, he was swiftly removed from the project, and he eventually did do another Stephen King adaptation, Christine, but... Yeah, what might have happened if John Carpenter had directed Drew Barrymore in Firestarter in 1984? But he comes back to the film, even though it's a completely different project, and does the score alongside his son and somebody else. So yeah, that's one mildly interesting thing. Another mildly interesting thing is the character of Rainbird, as played by Michael Greyeyes, who in the original novel 
is Native American, but in every other filmed version of this story, the 1984 film, and there was a TV miniseries in the early 2000s, that character has been played by a Caucasian actor. In the 1984 film, that character was played by the very, very white George C. Scott, and in the 2002 miniseries, that character was played by the very, very white Malcolm McDowell. So this is the first time that there's an ethnically appropriate actor being put in that role, and yeah, the more work Michael Greyeyes gets, the better, even if it's in utter, utter shit like this. Because that's what this is. It's utter, utter shit. It's mechanical. It's ticking boxes. It has all the cool special effects and all that kind of bullshit. If that's all you want, then maybe you'll be satisfied enough. But otherwise, there's just nothing here. Firestarter is just not good in any way. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a nay. And it rather spoiled my perfect record of cinematic trips this week with three other yays. But for me, Firestarter, available in cinemas now, is just not worth it. And it is a nay. Netflix and chill. Windfall is the latest film from writer-director Charlie McDowell, who is a second-generation filmmaker. He is the son of Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen, although for most of his life his stepfather has been Ted Danson. Charlie McDowell first got attention in 2014 when his film The One I Love got into Sundance and was very positively reviewed there. It was a small-scale film with a lot of indie cred, starring Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, two indie darlings, as well as his stepfather, Ted Danson. I kind of liked the one I love. I think it, it didn't fully explore the themes it was going for. I have issues with the ending. But it was certainly an interesting enough film. And then in 2017, he made The Discovery for Netflix. This one starred his mother, Mary Steenburgen, alongside Robert Redford and, not insignificantly for this particular film, Jesse Plemons and Jason Siegel as well. Since 2017 and The Discovery, Charlie McDowell has done quite a bit of television and has come back with this film which apparently was suggested by his friend Jason Siegel as a kind of Covid movie. It's a one-location movie with a very, very small cast, and Charlie McDowell and Jason Siegel, alongside Charlie McDowell's long-time writing collaborator Justin Lader, came up with this plan to make a very small-scale film, starring Jason Siegel and Jesse Plemons, and Charlie McDowell's recent wife, Lily Collins. So in this story, we are in a very luxurious holiday home in the California desert. This was actually filmed in Ojai, California. Actually, it's in Orange Grove, so this is probably inaccurate. But in any way, it's a lovely holiday home surrounded by Orange Groves. And as the film opens, 
Jason Siegel is wandering around in the big lumbering way that Jason Siegel always does. It looks perfectly reasonable. He sits down, he drinks some orange juice, he picks an orange from one of the trees. It looks like you know, a man appreciating his luxurious home. But then he decides to piss in the shower and deliberately smashes his orange juice glass. So something is up. And he tries to leave this property. Just as the actual owners of the property, tech billionaire Jesse Plemons and his trophy wife Lily Collins, have decided to make a last-minute trip to their holiday cottage. So suddenly, Jason Siegel can't leave and has accidentally taken these two people hostage. So what to do now? Jason Siegel realises that he has been caught on camera, so he essentially needs to disappear and needs a lot of money to do so, which Jesse Plemons and Lily Collins are perfectly willing to give him. They just don't have that amount of money on site. So they need to wait for about a day in order for Jesse Plemons' assistant to arrange for a large bag of cash to be delivered to this cottage. So these three people, Jason Siegel, the unwilling and unwitting kidnapper, and the two rich people who own the house, basically have to stay together for two days while they wait for this money to show up, and conversations are had about entitlements, about crime, about attitudes, and the goodness of the people involved is always up for debate. Right from the start of this film, it is very, very clear the tone that Charlie McDowell is attempting here. The opening credits of this film very strongly evoke Hitchcockian thrillers from the 1960s. The font used, the way it is overlaid over a still image of the outside of this cottage, the score strongly evokes those Hitchcockian films of the 1960s. So I believe that that is what Charlie McDowell is trying to get to, some kind of twisty-turny thriller, you know, who can be trusted, can anybody be trusted, that kind of thing. But... Honestly, it doesn't work. For one thing, the score eventually gets very, very loud and very obtrusive. I think a little more subtlety in the music would have been beneficial. And at the end of the day, this is a very, very surface-level interpretation of this setup. There are no real twists, there are no real deviations, there are no, there's no real invention of what you can do with these three people in this house. I had in the back of my mind an inkling as to what I thought was going on, and it says something that what I had in my mind was not accurate, but it was better than what was on the screen. There's just nothing new. It, it, it goes basically down the rails you expect. I mean, Jesse Plemons is this tech billionaire who is the absolute epitome of white entitlement, of white rich entitlement. 
at one point earlier in the film, Jason Siegel says, everybody's an idiot to you. And the little smirk that Jesse Plemons has shows you that he agrees with that. It's actually not all that dissimilar to Jesse Plemons' role in the Black Mirror episode he was in. Although not to that extreme, but it's that kind of thing. And Jesse Plemons says at one point, how can anybody be mad at me? Yo, I'm rich, I'm making all this money, I'm saving people's jobs. I mean, basically, the way he got rich and famous is he created an algorithm which did downsizing for you. Basically, you put all your workforce into this algorithm and it tells you who to fire. And that's how he got rich, which, yeah, a little bit on the nose. And everything on this film is a little bit on the nose. I mean, it's eventually, Jesse Plemons even has a rant about how hard it is to be a rich white guy. And he seems to genuinely believe it, that his life is so hard because he's rich and male and white. And all the time, Lily Collins is in the background, and you can see that she doesn't appear to be too happy. She's a trophy wife. She knows she's a trophy wife. And to some degree, she chose that life for herself. She wanted a life of ease and comfort and she's going to have to put up with this bullshit including being pressured into having a child which she clearly isn't ready for having a tattoo removed from her foot and i looked it up and lily collins genuinely does have a tattoo on her foot i'm not sure if she's having it removed but that is actually lily collins tattoo when we see a close-up of it but it's clear that Jesse Plemons wants this tattoo removed and not necessarily Lily Collins. She spends her days working for the foundation for Jesse Plemons' company. So she is doing busy work in a charity. I mean, she used to work for NGOs, she used to volunteer for charities. Now she's the rich wife of somebody and is in charge of a charity. And that's all she fills her life with. And She's trying to make the best of it. She's trying to encourage decency, but she has to put up with Jesse Plemons, and it becomes increasingly apparent over the course of these couple of days where she's essentially a prisoner that she's kind of had enough of Jesse Plemons. I mean, Jesse Plemons even suggests, strongly suggests, that his wife, Lily Collins, seduces Jason Siegel and potentially can escape that way. Jesse Plemons is a little bit of a sociopath. I mean, seeing everybody as object, seeing everybody as something which he can mould to his advantage. And he has this assumption that everything comes down to money. Everybody's attitude is dependent on money. I'm rich enough that I should be able to get out of this, and maybe you shouldn't. And, yeah, it, it's... It's all interesting stuff, but it's all pretty rote stuff. It's all stuff we've kind of seen before. If you have this basic setup of one home invader and two rich white people, these are the conversations you expect to have. And it's not done in any elegant way. It brings up these ideas and comments on these ideas and just leaves them there. There's nothing exciting there's no real twists to the situation it's very basic very 
ground level interpretations of these themes and ideas and yeah it's frankly not good enough i was very very disappointed with windfall i saw on netflix ooh charlie mcdowell i kind of liked the one i love or it's certainly you know i want to see what charlie mcdowell did next uh, i must admit i never got around to the, the discovery but the one I love, that was a, a film I appreciated, and I was curious to see what Charlie McDowell could do with this excellent cast. I mean, all three of these actors, Jesse Plemons, Jason Segel, and Lily Collins, are all actors I really, really like. So I thought, ooh, this is interesting. Maybe we can have some real in-depth discussion about the 1% and entitlement and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but no. It's just a very, very surface-level film with very basic, very rote ideas about what they're talking about. And it's just not good enough. I mean, yes, the acting is perfectly fine. Jesse Plemons, in particular, as this smirking, entitled epitome of white privilege is good. But there's no true depth to this film, I don't think. And it's probably not worth it. I mean, yes, it's on Netflix, so you can just click the button and watch it. And I guess you would have a decent enough time watching it. But there's so many better options, even on Netflix, than this film. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, it is just not worth it. So it disappoints me to say, but for me, Windfall, available on Netflix, is a nay. Not a particularly passionate nay. I don't think this is a terrible film. I just don't think it's worth it. And there are certainly better things out there. So for me, Windfall is a nay. Coming attractions. So this is one of the weeks where there's no really big major releases, at least not on the weekend, because we still have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness taking up a lot of screen times. And this coming Wednesday is the release of Top Gun Maverick, which I have absolutely zero interest in. I do not need to see such a testosterone-drenched movie. I mean, I liked Top Gun well enough when I was a kid, but I just don't need that kind of big men with big guns kind of thing in my life. So, yeah. I don't care about Top Gun Maverick, and I'm not going to see it. But because we have that coming and Doctor Strange already here, there's no major releases. But there are a sprinkling of art house releases, which I am intrigued by, including a film I have been absolutely desperate to see since I first heard about it. It's a film called The Innocence and is a Norwegian film written and directed by Eskil Vogt. Now, recently, Eskil Vogt has got international attention because he co-wrote The Worst Person in the World, the Norwegian film, and got an Oscar nomination for it as Best Original Screenplay. But I know the name Eskil Vogt from his 2015 film Blind which I absolutely loved. It was my favourite film of that year. It was my favourite foreign language film of that year. 
and its leading actress Ellen Dorrant Peterson was my best actress of the year. And now Eskil Vogt has made a new film on his own, apart from his long-term collaborator Joachim Trier, who directed The Worst Person in the World. But Eskil Vogt has made his own film, The Innocence, once again, starring Ellen Dorrit Peterson as a mother of a couple of young girls who, along with some of their friends, unexpectedly and mysteriously get superpowers. So, as far as I'm aware, for no particular reason, four little kids in Norway suddenly develop superpowers. And what do you do with that? Ellen Dorrit Peterson plays one of the mothers, and apparently one of the girls is Ellen Dorrit Peterson's actual daughter, which is cool. So yeah, Ellen Dorrit Peterson and Eskil Vogt reuniting after Blind and making a film about Norwegian kid superheroes. And as soon as I heard about that, I was desperate to see it. And it is finally being released this coming week, albeit very late at night over in Bristol. So it's getting a limited release, but I really do have my fingers crossed that's actually going to be worth watching. And also on the art house end of the spectrum, there's a couple of films, weirdly, both of which are related to the First World War, although taking very different approaches to them. The first and probably the bigger release, albeit an art house release, having said that, it is being played at the Odeon this week, but it's the new Terence Davies film, Benediction. Now, Terence Davies is one of those directors I think I kind of have an abusive relationship with. I very rarely like one of his films, but he is such an interesting filmmaker, I keep on going back to him, hoping that the next one will be good. I mean, for years, this is how I felt about Terence Malick, and then Terence Malick's last film, A Hidden Life, was in my opinion, superb. So I keep on crossing my fingers that I will actually like a Terence Davies film because he hasn't made anything I've liked for quite some time. I mean, the trilogy of autobiographical films he did in the late 80s into the early 90s, Distant Voices, Still Lives, The Long Day Closes and The Neon Bible, are justifiably seen as absolute classics of British cinema. But since then, He's got far too poetic, far too dependent on prose rather than actual screenwriting, in my opinion. And I just have not liked his last couple of films, Sunset Song and A Quiet Passion. But Terence Davis is, I acknowledge, a great filmmaker, so I'm always curious to see what he does. And the subject of his latest film is actually something I've got a little bit of a connection to, because it's essentially a biopic of the war poet Siegfried Sassoon. Now, in my youth, when I dreamed of becoming a screenwriter, something which I've long ago abandoned, I just don't have the discipline for it. One of the screenplays that I dreamed of writing was a film about the relationship between Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, because I found it fascinating that Wilfred Owen, this well-regarded, internationally famous war poet, 
a lot of his poems were essentially co-written with Siegfried Sassoon, and I don't think enough credit was given to Siegfried Sassoon for his contributions to Alfred Owen's poetry. So, yeah, I always dreamed about a film about Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, and while this film specifically deals with Siegfried Sassoon, that makes me interested to see what a filmmaker like Terence Davis does with it. I mean, he does seem to have this poetic approach. I mean, his last film, A Quiet Passion, was a biopic of Emily Dickinson, which I didn't particularly like when it came out. And then several years later, I saw Wild Nights with Emily, and I loved that biopic of Emily Dickinson. So, yeah, I am going to watch Benediction, particularly since it is playing at the Odeon and I can see it for free. But I freely acknowledge that I rarely like Terence Davis films, or certainly recent Terence Davis films. And a lot of the problems I have with his last two films, i.e. a lot of reciting of the prose on which it's based, I mean, not Emily Dickinson's poems, and in Sunset Song, the actual words from the book he was adapting by Lewis Grusset Gibbon, so my guess is that some of the same problems will still exist in Benediction, but I'm going to watch it anyway. And the other art house film based around the First World War is a film called The Road Dance, which is set in the Outer Hebrides in the build-up to the First World War, where a young woman is making eyes at a young man. They seem to be heading towards engagement and marrying and you know living off the fishing boats which come from the Isle of Lewis. But there are jealousies on the horizon and a different young man has unhealthy attentions towards this young woman. And then the First World War starts and all kinds of stuff starts happening at once. And whilst the men are away this young woman has to deal with personal tragedies and traumas and how these are dealt with by the local community. Looking at the trailer for this film, I think you can easily work out what it is that's going on, but I'm being a little bit coy as to how much I reveal here in case there are some genuine surprises to come. But yes, it looks interesting possibly even a little harrowing but i do think i want to check out the road dance a film set in the isle of lewis in the build-up to the first world war on disney plus there is a new film which looks bizarre it's a modern film dealing with Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, which in and of itself is not particularly unusual. But this one has been done by Andy Samberg and his Lonely Island crew. It looks, judging by the trailer, to be a little bit metatextual, a little bit fourth wall breaking. This is kind of a, a Roger Rabbit star world where tunes are real and interact with the real world. It's a mostly live-action film with animated characters. One of them is in the traditional 2D cell-drawn animation of the old 
Chippendale Rescue Rangers cartoon series, one of them has had CGI surgery to fit in better with the human world. So, yeah, lots of stuff about Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think cast members of Chippendale's Rescue Rangers TV series are being killed off and they have to investigate and interact with the real world. But it looks bizarre. It looks very, very meta-textual, very fourth-wall-breaking. And it's Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. So what the hell's going on? But yeah, I'm morbidly fascinated with that rather than eagerly anticipating it. But I have added Chippendale's Rescue Rangers to the list of films to watch. On Netflix this week, there's a lot of dumb romantic comedies being released, so none of those particularly appeal to me. But there is one other Netflix documentary which looks interesting and harrowing. It's called Cyber Hell Exposing an Internet Horror, which tells the disturbing true life story of a man in Korea who managed to coerce and blackmail various women, some of them underage, to commit lewd acts on video in chat rooms and managed to get away with it for quite some time, apparently. So, yeah, this is about the investigators trying to uncover who this guy is, how he was doing what he was doing, and trying to protect these women from these videos which are now online. So that sounds equal parts interesting and utterly, utterly horrifying, but I am curious nonetheless. So that has been added to the long, long list of Netflix documentaries, which I intend at some point to see. And that includes Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes, White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, and Our Father. So I really need to start ticking off some of these Netflix documentaries. And I will be getting to that at some point, but I have other things on my plate at the moment, which I will be talking about in a minute. As well as all those documentaries, I still also want to check out the Spanish psychological thriller Dancing on Glass, which I have actually started watching the last time I went over to Bristol. The next time I go over to Bristol on the bus, I'll probably be able to get most of the way through that when I go over to see The Innocents. So yes, a psychological thriller around the world of ballet in Dancing on Glass. There's also the South African film Silverton Siege and the French film, which is, by the looks of it, a rip-off of Lethal Weapon, The Takedown. I've actually discovered that's directed by Louis Leterrier, who is a director I kind of respect. So, yeah, that's made me even more curious about The Takedown. On the streaming platforms, I mean, available through Netflix, we have the thriller C for Me, where a blind girl has to fight off home invaders with the help of an app and a person who's halfway across the country and helping her. Then we have the thriller available through Disney+, Plus, No Exit, the family-friendly musicals available through Netflix, Better Nate Than Ever and Sneakerella, 
And I still have stored up on my Skybox. I just haven't had the time to watch it yet. The documentary, Your Mum and Dad, A Devastating Truth, which was broadcast on BBC4 recently about a Dutch filmmaker making a film about therapy who realises she needs to address her own family issues in the midst of making this film. So, yeah, still lots of stuff to get to. And that includes the fact that I have finally finished editing my Raw Footage Awards show. I just need to do the final few things in order to release that. So that will be released onto this feed in the next couple of days. And I'm also going to start working more directly on my video essays as well. That has been pushed to the background because of my end-of-year shows and my awards shows, and also a opportunity I talked about recently, which came up. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. There was an opportunity to be one of the programmers at the Film Bath Festival, which literally is my dream job. I applied, and they didn't even have me in for an interview. So, yeah, that was disappointing. But now I definitely know that's not going to be happening. I do want to get on with my video essays. And I think I need to practice before I go on to the lengthy ones I've got planned. I mean, I'm planning to do one about Lady Macbeth, which I've talked about in the past. I'm planning on doing a long one about the history of the International Feature Oscar. But I do feel I need to practice to make sure I know all the technical stuff so i want to do a shorter one to start off with and whilst i was thinking about something else it occurred to me that there are very few u.s remakes of foreign language films which are actually any good and or better than the original but one film i do think is better in its remake than in its original form is the horror film the silent house So I'm planning on doing a video essay, a short video essay, about the two different versions of The Silent House, the Uruguayan original and the remake starring Elizabeth Olsen. So I'm going to be working out how to do that and planning all that. So that is something I'm going to be working on in the coming weeks and months. And you will be able to find that on my YouTube channel alongside, eventually, some video essays. So I'm going to be very, very busy over the next weeks and months, as is always the case. But as ever, there will be a standard episode coming. A reminder that there were actually three yays in this particular episode, all available at the cinema. Everything Everywhere All at Once is wacky and wild, but has an amazing amount of heart to it. It's inventive, it's creative, and it's heartfelt. It's brilliant. So everything, everywhere, all at once is a yay. The Quiet Girl, the Gaelic film, is a simple story elegantly told with an excellent performance from its young lead, Catherine Clinch. Doesn't have any true surprises, but the way it has been executed, I found very beautiful and emotional. And then we have The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson, which is also a yay, showing the harsh realities of life in the outback in the late 19th century, particularly for women, particularly for Aboriginal people, 
and it doesn't sugarcoat its message at all. In some ways it is harsh going, but I think it's a valuable, it's an important reinterpretation of a story which is apparently part of the Australian literary canon, even though I'm not familiar with it at all. But yeah, Leah Purcell did something special and The Driver's Wife is also a yay. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host Colin Gaisley coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>